Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our archives, our, our, our library of weekly archive shows. And it's always our goal to make a difference. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening to my national audience, wherever, whenever you happen to be listening. Um, I welcome you to this brand-new show, brand-new guest, brand-new topic. Today, and uh, we are very excited to bring you a new Cutting Edge show as always. But before we get into that, I want to um, say I have uh, my good friend, my PR manager, the social media maven of South Carolina, Delilah Jones, with me. So let's say hi. Hi, Delilah. How are you? Hi, Donna. I'm fine. Thank you for all the wonderful things you say. It's great. Yeah, this is this is going to be a great show. Uh, I think, you know, Mike Street has such a, a wealth of information to um, to give to the audience, not only about his background and, and what he does, but his new book um, published by Wild Blue Press um, called Sketch Cop, and you can get it directly. Uh, from Wild Blue Press, or you can order the Kindle version or the paperback version on Amazon as well. And one thing I'd like to remind readers and our audience in general, when you when you purchase and read a book or if you get it in a contest or however you come across a book, um, make sure that you go onto Amazon and other other sites and leave reviews. It's so important, and especially for new authors um, like Mike. Uh, to have those reviews. So, you know, I encourage you to do that and and get them out there. Yes, uh, ditto. Um, I couldn't have said it better. It's, it's very, very important. It's kind of the lifeblood of an author. And once and once you build momentum, uh, I I think it's kind of analogous. I'm a I'm a an owner of a vacation rental property, and unless you write reviews for the property for more people to come and and stay at your property, it's the same thing. So um, I just wanted to put that in there. It's kind of analogous. So we, we all need our reviews. So, hey, I'm going to let our guest fill us in a little bit more on uh, giving a re- recap of his career um, uh, from the past to the present, but I'll just say it's it's such a pleasure to have Michael Street, who has a 35-year career in law enforcement slash forensic uh, artistry, if if that is the correct term. Um, And he's worked on many, many um, high-profile cases, and I'm sure a very diverse and interesting career. So it's very very, um, exciting to have this show in our toolbox. So I'll just say good uh, good morning from the East Coast, and thanks for being on Shattered Lives. It's a pleasure to have you, Mike. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Delilah. It's great to be here. Well, cool. Yes, and uh, we're so glad to have you. Um, so I guess sort of to build the framework, just like building a house, why don't you uh, start out by telling us a little bit of, of the background. I know your, up, your book is part memoir, but it's p- mostly about featuring cases. Can you tell us a little bit about your background just so we have an idea? Absolutely. Um, I started my career in Orange County, California as a police officer, and I moved around a little bit um, uh, to the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department and back to Orange County. I always found my way back home, it seemed like, and I had a pretty diverse, exciting uh, career as a street street cop and detective, and during that career, I was able to roll my long-time love of art and cartooning into my police career um, to become a police sketch artist. So that pretty much paralleled my career. And along the way, I I just kept learning more and more about it and working other cases for other police departments. And by the time I retired as a police sergeant in 2008, I started my own consulting company called Sketch Cop Solutions, which, uh, which I still own today. 
where we provide uh, facial imaging consulting to law enforcement throughout the, the world, actually, uh, through software sales, the facial imaging software training, uh, actually consulting on, 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 on cold and warm cases, so to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that led me, uh, between the time I retired and now, you know, working with my own company, I also uh, was hired by the Baltimore City Police Department as their first ever full-time forensic artist working out of the crime laboratory. So I was hired and tasked with setting up their very first forensic facial imaging unit in the crime laboratory where I worked time for three years, and now I still work for them as a consultant and one of the clients of my company. And all of that led me to to, to write this book of, of my experiences uh, that you'll see in SketchCop, Drawing a Line Against Crime, where I touch on, on my career and, and, and touch on some of the things I just talked about. And um, and I focus on some of the higher-profile cases I've worked over the last 35 years, uh, cases that I thought would be unique and interesting to people in terms of the victim dynamic and the victim profile and, and what actually happened to them. Uh, there are things that, you know, we can do to avoid crime, uh, and there are things that it's just dumb luck or fate or poor circumstances and such, and as much as you want to try to avoid it, it happens. And then, you know, after it happens, you know, we have to um, – find a way to help put folks back together again. And, and I think that what I do as a forensic artist uh, and a you know, forensic interviewer of sorts, um, you know, I'm providing some sort of psychological first aid as a first step to getting them back on the road by allowing them to participate in the police investigation, allowing them to confront their attacker for the first time, or maybe I shouldn't say for the first time, but again on paper, and relieve them of the burden of having to hold on to that faith and share it with law enforcement and share it with the world, so to speak, and the community and such, um, so they can get on the road to healing and, and leave that responsibility to someone else. So, you know, the book contains cases. The last chapter is, is kind of a review of, of helpful safety tips that people may have thought of, maybe not have thought of. Shared a couple of stories of, of myself as a victim just to show that, you know, police themselves or former police aren't immune to the ills of society, so to speak. And it, it, and it all wraps up in a wonderful book, I think. And, um, and a great career that I still am privileged to enjoy. Well, it it does sound wonderful, and it's 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 great that we can evolve into these different uh, aspects. Um, just to go back a little bit, because you did give us a lot of information there. Um, is is being a forensic artist something that you you grow into the position? Like you said, you had you probably have an innate talent for cartooning and being an artist, and um, how does that mesh together if you start out in law enforcement or say you were something else entirely, you were an accountant, but you, you know, you, you said, this is really my passion, like what I do here is my passion, it's not my paid job. So how did that blend together, so to speak, Mike? You know, I grew up in a police household, and, and it wasn't – my intention to become a police officer. I mean, I, I was probably back then a better cartoonist than a, a portrait artist, so to speak, and drawing faces and such. And, and I grew up in Orange County, California, uh, right next door to where Disneyland is. So it was always my goal to become a, a, a Disney animator. That's what I wanted to do. And oh, wow. my father talked, and he, he, did, he did his best to talk me out of, of, of becoming a police officer because he was concerned about um, – he was just concerned about my safety all around, and, and he just wanted something different for me. And, and I remember him taking me out one day and trying, like the Dickens, to talk me out of becoming a police officer. And he wanted me to set me up in my own, you know, T-shirt, silk screening shop to make, you know, surf and cartoon T-shirts or whatever, anything other than being a police officer. But, you know, I love working outside. I love the tales he told. I love every the, the, the cops hanging around, the brotherhood of it. And so uh, it was my way of... of, of giving back and so I put the art on hold and it just kind of happened and you know I, I was watching TV one night and watching a newscast and saw a composite sketch and, and it's when that epiphany hit me it's like that's it that's how I can merge the two and blend the two together and have the best of both worlds yeah you can combine the best of both worlds. well that's that that's wonderful we we all should we all should have that and we I think we all work toward that there are things that we do to um you know for our survival so that and then there's things we do 
um, in terms of our passion, and it sounds like you've really done a wonderful job in blending them. It's great. Um, can you can you tell us um, what what uh, before I was going to ask about what might be a typical day in the life of? Um, but what is the biggest fallacy about your profession when you're we're talking about forensic artistry? I mean, people may be picking up the wrong idea from watching somebody on CSI or Law and Order where they might have had a sketch artist there for 10 seconds. And what's, what's the biggest fallacy that you fight against with regard to your profession? I think there's two things. One is the CSI effect that it only takes a few minutes to, to accomplish. And yeah. number two is that the composite must look exactly like the criminal. And, and, and those are the two biggest fallacies and disappointments, I guess, you know, people think they're going to run in and out of my office in an hour, or I'm sorry, in a few minutes versus an hour or two. And then when, you know, the, the police detective gets the sketch, they look at it and their, their first instinct is, oh, it looks so generic, it could be anybody. And I think, I think, it's, um, I think it's a matter of, of, you know, trying to manage people's expectations, you know, telling victims and or eyewitnesses, you know, you're going to um, you're going to be here a significant period of time. You know, it's not going to look like the person because their expectation is that it has to look like a portrait. That everything has to match. The eyes have to match. The nose has to match for it to be successful. It doesn't. Okay. Um, so are you are you saying that? And these are people that you. Um, Get the information from that are eyewitnesses, right? We t- we yes. hear the information that historically eyewitness identifications a lot of times are are very faulty. Let's let's say so. How do you reconcile that? I mean, is it you're concentrating on the smallest detail and you kind of build from there? You know, you, you try to pick what's no, most significant. Let me step back here a second. You know, there, there is a lot of stories of, of people being exonerated by DNA and, and uh, who are convicted solely based upon eyewitness identification. And, and it is true that eyewitness identification, there are inherent problems with it. But I actually had lunch one day with Elizabeth Loftus, I should say Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, a professor at UC Irvine here in California, and she is one of the top 50 cognitive psychologists in the world. And, and, and she, you know, promotes this whole theory of, you know, eyewitnesses getting it wrong and the repressed memory stuff. And, and I asked her, I said, look, I said, people can't always be getting it wrong. And she acknowledged, she said, you know, you're right. She said, you know, there are some cases, you know, where people actually do get it right. And I have to go back to a defense attorney and say, hey, look, you know what, you know, we just can't, make a case for a wrong identification is I, I think they probably got it right. So one of the things I do and, and, and how that plays into what I do is, is that, you know, I actually reach out to these world famous psychologists who, who may, you know, debunk the whole eyewitness thing. I say, look, you know, how do we do it the right way? You know, how can we get this right then? You know, how can we make this better? And I think that if you look at the research and you look at, ways that eyewitness identification can be contaminated, you start with that. You start with that, you find out how and why people get it wrong, and you try your best to minimize the things during your interview that's going to lead them astray, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. and outside of that, I think making people feel at ease as well. I mean, when um, I worked in Baltimore City, um, I, you, can, you can only imagine how busy I was doing sketches there because they have a very violent crime rate. And I found that um, I had a, a cartoon poster uh, that I hung in my office. It was called The Bad Guys. And it was a collection of all the TV wise guys and, and such and the movie wise guys in a pool hall, beer hall, caricatured. And a lot of the people in Baltimore, you know, I, used, I always used to joke that one day they were criminals, the next day they were victims. You know, their whole thing, they, they would come in the office, they would stop and they would look, and they would be able to name all the different, you know, people really? in the poster. And that, and, that was, and that was my jump-off point of building rapport with them. 
And once I built that rapport and, and had them feel comfortable, then I was able to employ these different techniques, you know, that, that I've studied and that, you know, that the research that's out there to make sure that I got it right as much mm-hmm. as I could to the degree that I could. Now, you know, you're, you're always going to have something go awry, uh, but just because, you know, a number of people are, you know, wrongly convicted, I, I, I still don't think that's enough to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that you still have to forge ahead with these types of tools that rely on that and use that as part of a way of finding evidence that's going to solidly back up that eyewitness identification. Right. Good, bad, or well, different. Is it is it vastly different than your interviewing techniques when you're just um, interviewing with regard to the, the crime in general versus what you're doing when you're drawing? I mean, are you looking at it sort of from a holistic approach with the person and you want to know everything they've observed or everything they know? Or do you focus right in on, you know, okay, what what did you observe about this person physically? It's definitely different. You know, when you know when I was in the academy and I hit the streets, it was a who, what, when, where, why, and how. And it was the whole Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts type of, of scenario. And I found with, with friends at Gart and and interviewing for a composite sketch, there is a very there's very much is a holistic approach in terms of how you interview. You oftentimes in most cases let the eyewitness and or the victim lead the interview in a narrative form. You may ask them a question, an indirect question, an open-ended question that encourages a narrative answer. So within that narrative answer, you can pick out the nuggets of what you need and or use that to gently guide them in another another direction. They're leading, but you're kind of guiding. And by the time you get done with this conversation, and it it is a conversation, you've got this sketch that, leaves them very relieved, satisfied, and surprised in their ability to, to, to remember. So you're perpetually talking and sketching at, at simultaneously and modifying as you go for this maybe couple of hours? Is that how it goes, or do you just sit there and talk and then start? Or I mean, it, does it depend? You know, the, the, it, it, it all depends. I mean, you have to... Um, you can't, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of interview because some person may come in that they're a passive eyewitness. They just happen to be there, and maybe not, the, they maybe weren't the victim themselves, and you, and they're very blasé about it. And you have other people who come in who was the victim of a shooting or uh, a, a sexual assault, and mm-hmm. they're very traumatized, and it takes that much longer to get them going. And, and I don't start sketching right away. I mean, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of rapport building, there's a lot of trust, a lot of bridge building that goes on, but yet it doesn't drag on. And at yeah. some point you pick up that pencil and draw and then involve them in the process. And, and uh, you know, with, I mean, for me, within, you know, within, by the time an hour is done, I've got something down on paper that, that, that they're happy with. Well, yeah, that that's good. In, in, in the scheme of... Um forensic evidence, where would uh, your sketch rank in terms of the in, in importance, say, in a trial or whatnot? Did they, uh, is it highly valued? It is. I mean, in terms of the investigative protocol at the outset, I'm either the first person called or the last person called. Uh, the first person called because they don't have any other evidence that they found at the time or they just want to get it started with a sketch, or the case has gone on for months, they've exhausted every lead, every possible avenue, and then they call you for the sketch. Uh, in terms of evidence, um, it depends. Um, I've had death penalty cases where the sketch played a major role in the investigation, and I've never been called. As an eyewitness, because they chose to use DNA and, and not risk it, um, and not risk a, a, you know a, a faulty ID, and that may have been because the case involved child witnesses or other witnesses who 
they may not have felt as confident in their ability to testify properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that also depends upon the uh, prosecuting attorney because some of them, you know, some of them don't really like composite sketches. Some of them heavily rely on them. A lot of it just depends upon the structure of the case and the dynamics of the case and, and uh, how the prosecutor feels about sketches. Yeah, I I imagine. You know, I don't really see that many that that hit social media. Is uh, although I could be wrong. Is that is there a particular reason for that? Surveillance cameras. That's why. I mean, I I'm starting to see more and more uh, surveillance videos or surveillance stills uh, of crimes, and some of them capture the suspect beautifully, and there's no reason to do a sketch. Others. You know, you look at it and you go, really? I mean, you've, you've got a camera up in the corner of this really crummy little liquor store somewhere, and it's it's old technology, and they're doing it just because they bought the store from the previous owner was already there. Their insurance requires it, so they just slap a camera up there and, and, and do old-school video technology, and, and they think that the the detectives say, well, that's, that's good enough. And, and, I, and I used to bang on these guys in, in Baltimore. I think I got, got them to come around after a while because a lot of people just, a lot of detectives just say, well, I've got video. And I, and I say, well, look at the video. You can't really see much of the face. And I said, if you get that witness to describe a, the person's face and you put that sketch next to the video, now you've got a, a, a sketch of the face. Now you've got a picture of the person's posture or clothing that might be unique between the two, you're going to heighten your ID. So it's just an educational process for me as a forensic facial imaging specialist. Uh, but I think the biggest thing and the biggest reason you see, you know, a lack of sketches now is just, is just the proliferation of more video, cell phone video, um, surveillance video, you know, just any kind of video or, or still shot. Right. Well, that yeah, that's very interesting. In the span of your successful career, um, what would you say the percentage of success in, in apprehensions can be traced back to the sketches that you're doing? You know, it all depends on who you ask. I mean, uh, a lot of, a lot of, you know, some sketch artists will say, you know, their sketches result in 30% identification rate. I venture to guess it's much lower than that. Um, it, it's a difference of, you know, somebody who says that they're, you know, six feet tall, but when they take their shoes off, they're only five foot six, you know. Um, I, I really couldn't tell you. All I know is that, you know, when it works, it works. When it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think it would probably work better if they were probably used more correctly. And, the, and what I say correctly is, is the, the distribution of them, it's nice just to put it's nice to put it on social media and have those avenues to distribute it. But I think also much like, you know, pro, um companies use, you know, direct marketing and certain targeted marketing for their products and such, I think uh, you know, putting a sketch out the same way. Um, you know, making sure you hit certain areas, making sure you hit certain people, making sure, you know, the distribution is such that the right people are going to see it. It's, it's the same thing with it was the same thing with facial reconstructions. You know, um, a lot of facial reconstructions are are ID'd because there's a lot of missing persons out there who have families that are looking for them. So they're already in tune. They're already checking the paper for stories about unidentified bodies. They're already you know looking at all the sites that feature missing and unidentified sketches and facial reconstructions and such. So they're they're already in tune. They're already out there looking. Um, with, with the police composite sketches, you know, you put it out there in social media, and, and I'm not quite sure that social media is giving us a reach that it probably needs. And the only reason I say that is, is because I find even with some of my own posts that I put out some of my sketches trying to help law enforcement get out there as much as it can. Only so many, only so many people see it. Well, so many people are allowed to see your posts and your feeds and such. Right. Well, if you have a, an organization that is is geared toward sharing things, like I'm thinking of Help Save the Next Girl in the Morgan Harrington case, Delilah, in which, 
you know, her her killer um, at at the particular stadium where she was where where she was killed. They did not have sufficient cameras, and ultimately, you know, the sketch was pivotal in in helping to 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 solve that case. Don't you agree? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a sketch that was. Um, it was posted everywhere. I mean, people made copies and plastered it on their cars and and as they drove around. So it was it was made very very public for gosh a, a couple of years or so before you know he was actually apprehended for an, another crime and then it was all tied together. But yeah, I think that I think that sketch was definitely pivotal in, in the solution of of that crime. Yeah, and I think uh, it's some, it takes a while sometimes too. I mean, some of these cases. I mean, I've had I've had cases where I've done a sketch and they put it on the news, and in less than a minute, somebody calls and provides a name. And I've had cases go on for years before the sketch, like you say, you know, it, it somebody notices it, and it kind of rolls it all around and, and, and wraps up in a nice little bow, and, and you wonder why it took so long. And sometimes that's, it's just it's just the way things work. Yeah, uh, sometimes it's kind of the luck of the draw. Um, with regard to, um, we've got maybe about a half hour left of our show, which is great because we can maybe focus on some of the the content of your book if you would like. Um, Absolutely. With regard, with regard to particular particular cases, uh, would you like to share with us some some of the more uh, you know give us. Give us kind of uh, some of the the fascinating things that people might not know um, with regard to what you might have encountered so that they'll want to purchase the book and read it. Sure. Um, The the book contains cases uh, from my career that that were the ones that probably people might have heard of, you know, nationally and or regionally and such. And each of the cases – involve a wide variety of victims in terms of ages, uh, certain you know circumstances and such, and the challenges I had to overcome to come up with the sketch. For example, the, the Samantha Runyon case, uh, which was a five-year-old girl who was abducted back in 2002 and later found murdered, you know, that, that case was very challenging from the standpoint of she was playing with her five-year-old playmate in an alley, near in, in her home and was abducted by a stranger and by the time I was able to talk to the five-year-old eyewitness it was probably about you know, nearly eight hours after the abduction and by that time she'd been interviewed and talked to by everybody news media detectives parents grandparents everybody and you'd think by that time I wouldn't have been able to get an ounce of information from her and this girl at midnight when we first met was wide awake. She was coherent. She was engaged. And we worked until 3 o'clock in the morning on that sketch. And, and within 48 hours, they had a name of a suspect. And um, they were able to arrest him, uh, match his DNA, find a whole treasure trove of evidence that helped uh, convict him and put him on death row. And wow, that, was that one of those is cases- amazing. It is. I mean, they had the case wrapped up in a week, and it was a multi-agency case where they were able to keep everyone together. Uh, the FBI was very helpful. Uh, they had, like, over 400 detectives working in that case. No squabbling, no interagency fighting, nobody jumping up to try, try to take the credit. And it was one, it was unusual from that aspect, but they kept the thing moving, and they had it wrapped up in a, in a week. And it was it was tremendous, and it was all because of this little girl had the courage to step forward, and she was very articulate in what she saw and very sure in what she saw. And I think she'd probably be about 17 or 18 years old today. And, um, she, I mean, she was the one that broke the case. And, and that's one of the things in the book that I'm very, very careful to, you know, give credit to the eyewitnesses and the victims because it takes a lot to step up, and it takes a lot to want to stay engaged for a lot of different reasons. And it'd be easy for me to say, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm the guy that drew it. You know, well, yeah, I'm the guy that drew it, but it's almost like one of these 
synergistic relationships where I can't do it without me, they can't do it without them, so we work as a team. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. I would be I would be I would be useless without them. Right. Um, and then and then then of course at the time I had a son in Iraq at war, a, a wife that was fighting uh, a terminal a terminal disease with cancer and, and such, and, a, and another kid graduating from high school trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life, and I had to push all this down and, and put it all aside to focus on this case, and it was um, it was a tragic case, but yet a tremendous show of human spirit and and, and tenacity in this little girl. I, I can't. I can't say enough about her. Well, it sounds like that you you had incredible personal uh, circumstances you were dealing with, so I commend you for that as well. But it leads me to the question when you're talking about this when when dealing with children and all of this. And this, I don't know if this this girl was the exception to the rule, but it, in in working a case and where you become important, is there a particular I guess pecking order might be the right term in terms of who gets access to the most important people that can help with the salvability of the case, particularly if it's a child like, you know, you said you might see them in the beginning or the end, and if they had done it in a particular um, different order or if this child wasn't as articulate or she was too tired, I mean, it, it could have turned out differently, did they? Is there a particular protocol for that as opposed to dealing with adults? Um, yes and no. Um, I don't get to pick the witnesses typically. Um, I The detectives bring them to me, and sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes I, it, it, comes, it comes out later. I find out later I probably should have been working with someone else. Um, sometimes they'll bring a, a few people to me and say, you know, pick out who you think will be the best witness. Um, kids... It's it's a little bit different because sometimes, you know, they get social services involved, sometimes they don't, and they, they get the advocates involved from the the protection of the child standpoint in terms of making sure that the child is not, you know, that they that their exposure to harmful matter, you know, is minimized. But in cases like this, you know, um in cases like this, I mean I I have as much access as I need to whoever I need depending upon the, the type of case, and, and I've never been, well, let me put it this way. I had an advocate in Baltimore who, who, who kicked me out of an, uh, a forensic interview she was going to do with an, with an eyewitness, and later I told her, you know, if she ever did that again, um, she'd be the one flying out the door and, and, and not me because, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, don't, I, there's, I don't need people to try to tell me who's going to be important to me and who's not, and what kind of access I'm going to have, and, and what the limitations are going to be. I'm That's the one that's going judge out as there. A professional, right? Right. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's my job to judge the eyewitness, and you know, sometimes I'll tell the police, "Hey, look, we just don't have enough. They just can't do it." Or you know what? You need to let them go home and sleep. You need to let them go home and change their clothes or eat. You need to let them just kind of decompress. And sometimes. These investigations are so dynamic and they're so high profile. You have to understand, you know, um, these these types of cases I get involved in, the ones in the book are like, you know, serial rape cases and and homicide cases. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure to um, solve these cases before something happens again. And, and you know, they... And it starts from the top in these communities, whether it's the mayor, the city council, putting pressure on the chief, who puts pressure on the captain. You know, it's no matter what, this case has to get solved and has to get solved right away. And I understand that because I used to be a detective. I was a detective for 10 years. I've investigated violent crimes. I've investigated petty crimes. But there's always something else you can be doing with the case while you're taking care of the eyewitness and the victim because pushing them to do something they're not ready to do either physically or psychologically, is not going to help your case. Right. It can, in fact, harm them. So uh, I I think that there could be no more important person, um, particularly with cold cases and missing person cases, and it's my understanding from Steve that you've been involved in many, many missing persons cases. Is that right? I have been involved in some, and... um, 
I think the missing persons cases, um, they're probably the most challenging because, you know, you're taking Tell us information. About that, yeah. Well, you know, you, you, it's, you, you, my involvement in any missing persons case um, is going to involve either conducting an age progression of that missing person, uh, you know, projecting what they might look like several years down the road based upon scientific information and information I get from the family and sometimes just a wild guess. And sometimes it comes from the skull that's found maybe in a desert, buried in the mountains or whatever, and then I have to work with an anthropologist and, and, and come up with um, a, a projection of what the face might have looked like when they were alive. And, and I did that, and I detailed that in the book, actually, in a case of two brothers who were kidnapped at gunpoint. It was, it was witnessed by people, and several years later, after they convicted the suspect and it was overturned on appeal, um, that they found these skulls and they didn't make the connection. And so they gave me the skulls to try to, to, to create a drawing of what they look like alive. And, again, that's a case where the sketch at the paper and two different people in two different areas recognized it from previous cases they'd worked and were familiar with these two brothers and were able to help tie it together. So... This is the fascinating thing about what I do is because I get involved in so many things. I mean, the most recent thing is not in the book, but a lot of people saw it on the History Channel where these three convicts broke out of Alcatraz Prison in California here back in 1962 or 64, in the early 60s, and um, they were presumed to be dead. And the Marshal Service launched this investigation. I mean, they, they, you know, Clint Eastwood made a movie about it, and um, I was tasked with taking a photograph of, of who they thought were two of the escapees living in South America that was taken in the 70s. And the FBI and the Marshal Service, no, no, they're dead. They, they, they drowned in the channel, and, and I was able to take these photographs and compare them to uh, the booking photos and, and come up with an analysis that strongly suggested they were the same people. Wow. So and I, I get involved in appropriate cases. Yeah. Whoa! Uh, in terms of your case, your your caseload, um, and it sounds like you are very much in demand, um, and you're based in Southern California. How do you go about? How do you go about picking the cases that you're going to be working with? Because I'm sure that every single missing person or, or, or family that has a homicide case would love to have you on it. How do you go about that process? Well, um, well, when I get these requests, what I often do is, is I evaluate them, and I like to have some sort of law enforcement involvement, a case number, a police report, and you know they'll um, I'll call the police agency and ask them if, if, if there's any harm in me getting involved. And usually, either a family will reach out to me and, and, and you know and, and offer to, to pay to have me do certain things and or through a private investigator the family employees. And my only, you know, again, my only uh, requirement is that there's some sort of law enforcement tie to it. And if there is, then, you know, I usually call the detectives and say, look, you know, the family wants to hire me to do an age progression or they want, a, they felt a composite should have been done, never one was never done. You know, is it going to harm the case if I interview this person? And, and typically they're, you know, they're, they're, they've either reached the Are point where... Are they usually where, receptive? In most cases, yes. In most all cases, yes. I haven't had a case yet where they've turned it down because, one, you know, somebody else is, is, is paying the money out of their, uh, out of, uh, for the case, so to speak. In other words, someone else is paying the freight for it, and they're going to get the benefit of the, of the work at the end. And number two is that, you know, I come at it from a law enforcement background, so I'm just not some person off the street calling and saying, hey, look, you know, I know how to talk their language. I know how far to push or, right. or where to step. And uh, so it's a good thing. So people, and I, uh, and I, I had people contact me where, like, a woman contacted me. She was in jail. She was accused of, of murdering her, her child. And she was awaiting trial, and the circumstances were such, I just didn't feel comfortable getting involved. So I just, I, I politely turned her down and, you know, didn't take the case. Yeah, well, you can't take all requests. You have to 
I guess be selective with your time and 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 all of those kinds of things. But uh, when you talk about doing age progression, and I know that's a very fascinating aspect. Um, and then we're tying in you you have developed with your company. If you want to maybe get into that a little bit with regard to your your digital composites, your software that you've developed. How does how does one compare to the other when you're doing an age progression with a sketch versus doing it digitally? And my understanding is you're are you, you're going in and training law enforcement law enforcement to be able to do their own digital imaging, like train the trainer kind of thing, Mike. Uh, yeah, kind of, sort of. Um, and, and again, I, I, I go, going back to the book, I do talk about the the progression of composite sketches historically. I touch on the history of it and, and where it's gone in terms of the digital realm and the software I created, SketchCop FaceSet Face Design System, which is a facial composite software for police agencies that don't have access to a forensic artist uh, who want to create their own facial composites on on demand when they need them. So. You know, we'll sell the agencies the software, and we will also train their people in the use of it. Uh, you know, our company also sells a product called Forensica GPS, where we can take those surveillance photos we talked about yeah. that have the face at a various angle and do the pose normalization on it with a mathematical algorithm. It'll, it'll say, for example, I've got a surveillance photo, or law enforcement has a surveillance photo of a person, like, looking away at a 30-degree angle, uh, they can put that face into the software. It creates a 3D avatar that you can rotate to a frontal, full frontal position and make it facial recognition software system ready so you can pop it into a facial recognition program and, and try to come up with likely candidates uh, who could be your suspects in the crime. And we also... Um, you know, we also do the, the consulting in terms of live sketches. For example, if uh, I had a call from a or I had an email from somebody in Romania that was a victim of a crime that wanted me to do a composite sketch remotely, and so I have a product called SketchCop Remote where any law enforcement agency in the world can contact me, and I set up a virtual composite sketch interview over the phone, and I connect my computer to theirs, and the eyewitness and/or victim watches me draw and direct me what to draw from anywhere in the world. And then afterwards, wow. I'm able to, you know, afterwards <laughs> I'm able to e- email that sketch to the detective uh, just, as, just as if we're in the same room together. Yeah. And in what dimension are these done? It's not um, two dimensions, three dimensions. I mean, is, are these very intricate, what you're able to do? They are. I mean, the sketches I do remotely, they're two-dimensional Sketches like you'd like you'd see on paper. I'm doing it electronically. I'm doing it in software that uh, that allows me to draw and, and emulate a pencil sketch and, and get something out that's very high quality. That again, the, the, I go through the same interview process I would do if, if the person were sitting across from me. So I've learned to leverage technology to say, for example, let's let's say um, a corner in some rural county. You know, they've, they've got it unidentified, and they said, you know, we need you to touch this photograph up or do a sketch of, of what this clean up the wounds and approximate this person would look like in life. All they have to do is just email me the, any of the crime scene photos and the photos, and I'll take it from there, and I can conference with them online and do the, the phone and, and, and computer connection um, and, and provide that kind of service for them. So between leveraging technology, developing technology, and using my um, – Using these skills I have and the in the experience I have in law enforcement, I'm able to provide a wide range of, or I should say, an unlimited range of forensic facial imaging services for police departments and victims of crime all around the world. That that's wonderful. I just uh, I'm I'm amazed and, and very excited about you know hearing more about it in the future. Um, is is this something that is fairly cost-effective for police departments because we're always hearing about, oh, we can't afford this or we can't afford that? or um, Is it something they could incorporate into their budgets if they need it? Absolutely. I've, I've made it affordable. That was one of my missions when I first started doing this is that, you know, everybody thinks the government is a, is a, a deep well of money and an endless pot of gold, and, and it's not. I mean, 
Oh. You know, law enforcement budgets are shrinking every year, and so they have to be smart with their money. So if they don't want to hire a a police sketch artist and have one on staff, um, they can buy the software and have an unlimited amount of sketches they can de- develop for much less the cost. And if they if they just find themselves doing one or two sketches a year, then they can hire us to do the remote service and provide them with a high quality, you know, um, sketch from one of the most experienced sketch artists in America, and um, you know, get it for a reasonable price that will not ding their budget. So wow, I try to do this all. Yeah, I try to do an a la carte uh, an a la carte service where they pay for only what they need when they need it. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, um getting back to the kinds of, of of victims that you serve and I'm I'm just wondering as a homicide survivor and thinking of the other classifications of victims, um does this is this true? It's it's my assumption that Maybe one of the most difficult types of victims to work with are those sexual assault or or rape victims because they uh, are so focused on staying alive that maybe they're not as observant as other crimes. Or is that is that not true? That's not true. They they think that they think that they don't remember, um, and I and I can I can't even imagine. I won't even pretend to imagine the amount of terror they go through. But right. the, the studies have shown that the higher level of trauma, the more imprinted it is in our memory. And it's just a matter of being able to access that and draw that out. And I tell you what, I have much love and much admiration for victims of crime. I mean, the, 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 the victims of, I mean, I, when I put on that uniform, I went out there every day. And if I got shot at or someone tried to stab me or hit me, I was, you know, technically I was the victim of a crime. But nobody considers police the victim of a crime because they just figure it's part of our job, we're trying to handle it, and this, that, and the other. Personally, you know, when I've been burglarized or my car was stolen, you, you, you have that feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that how dare they? But when you talk about somebody who is not trained to be able to handle that sort of vicious attack and that sort of vicious assault on their dignity, right. on their livelihood... Um, I have I have much 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 admiration for them, and, and that is one of the things I tried to um, in the book Sketch Cop Drawing a Line Against Crime. I try to pay homage to the, the surviving victims and the eyewitnesses and stuff that had the, the courage and the backbone to step up and then do what they do. Absolutely. And I, and I think so. That, and, and I think that, the, and I'll just say one more thing before I, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, um, but I I, th- I think that the the justice system and the police departments and everybody involved from the first officer on the scene all the way to the prosecuting attorney, judge and courts and, and juries and stuff like that have to have to better respect victims and better and, 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 and do more for them than it's being done. You know, I, I, I just I'm just I'm just a firm believer in that because I, I think that we don't do a good enough job of, of keeping them engaged and keeping them in the game, so to speak. Well, we're always beating that drum, and that's the reason for this show. You know, dealing with the aftermath of crime and trying to connect resources to to our audience and giving them uh, cutting-edge information where they might not be able to get otherwise. So we're totally on the same page with that, Mike. And, you know, um, I was thinking we've got about maybe 10 minutes or so left to our show. and. Sure. Um, just saying that, uh, you know, I know you had worked a lot in uh, Baltimore City, Baltimore, and we have very good connections and relationships. We've done a number of shows with the Baltimore Guardian Angels. Um, and, um, you know, they are have just in the last year, two years, been inundated with maybe over 300 or more homicides in a year, and just to deal with the volume of those kinds of cases. Um, when you when you look at a city like that that's inundated and is just you know chaos personified, what where do you see if you went back there? How could you make inroads with regard to a situation like that where there's so many homicides, there's so much violence going on. 
You know, that's a great question. I love, I absolutely have this love affair with Baltimore. I mean, even, even though I don't live there anymore, I, I still go back there because I, I still work for the Baltimore City Police Department. I'm still their sketch artist of record, so to speak. And so okay. I, go ba- I go back there and interface with the detectives and, and hang out with them and go out with them and, and connect with people I know that live in the city still. And I think that um, what happens is, is there's, a lot of, there's a lot of apathy amongst the, the people who live there. And I say that with all due respect, having lived there a short time and experiencing what they experience and such, um, it, it, it's just hard. And the police department is doing the best they can to make inroads in the community to get them to engage with the public. And, and I, I saw it in my work in terms of, you know, people would make appointments to come in and see me for a sketch and they wouldn't show up. Uh, the detectives would go out to pick somebody up to come in and do a sketch, and they wouldn't be there. They just kind of got on with their lives, uh, so to speak. Or they were involved in a criminal activity, and they had to get back on the, on the corner and, and, and sell drugs or whatever. I mean, I... Do you I think they've given up? I mean, yeah, yeah, I, don't, I don't think... Yeah, I think, they've, I think they've given up. I think they've... I think that they've... I think that the enormity of the situation has kind of overwhelmed them. Um, I think that um, at the, and the police department does a significant amount of outreach. They do have, you know, uh, victims programs there. They do uh, have organizations that reach out and work with sexual assault victims. And, I mean, they're doing a lot. But I just think that there's so much poverty there. There's so much drugs. There's so much violence. There's so much motivation for people not to get involved. I mean, when I was there, they had a saying on the street called snitches get stitches. And so, you know, people were reluctant to get involved because they didn't want to be laying on the corner table next to the person that they uh, talked to the police about. Right. Well, that's the beauty of the uh, – and I just want to give a plug in July. Hopefully I think you would agree with me. The, the Baltimore Guardian Angels are the glue of the community because they are – they're not, I mean, they have had former law enforcement go over and become guardian angels. We had a, a wonderful show not too many weeks ago of a female police officer that was very, very effective now as a guardian angel, and I think they're they're doing wonderful things. I don't know if you've had a chance to meet with them, but the next time you, you go there, I would say uh, Marcus Dent is, is the commander and I think you should go and meet with him. That would be a good connection. Uh, but they they are doing everything they possibly can, and they're they're a wonderful wonderful group of people, and they're trying to help that community as much as they can. I say, Delilah. Oh, absolutely. Everyone back there. Hmm? They, they all they, everyone back there has their work cut out for them, and and they're all working really. Right. They're all working very hard. I mean, I know the police department's taking a black eye over the last year, but I tell you what, I've been involved in law enforcement. I've traveled around the country, and I've, I've worked with all sorts of police agencies. I've never seen a police agency that has the heart and soul and and that work as hard with so little to work with without complaint is the Baltimore City Police Department. I mean, they they care more about that city and its residents yeah. than, they're giving, than they're giving credit for. Well, I I certainly believe you. We have to we have to tip our hats also to. Our, we work with so many of the grassroots nonprofit organizations that interface with law enforcement, and if it's not for organizations such as that that do not get any pay for what they do, um, I mean they're they're invaluable. So I I can't. Um, I can't say enough ab- about them, you know, in working in concert with law enforcement, such as the, the Q Center for the Missing in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, which is also has natural national outreach. Uh, but um, circling back here, just to, to get back to your book, is there something in particular that um, at first glance, I know I think we've given a, a fairly good overview of what it might 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 contain so that people would want to to buy it and read it and maybe give for gifts and whatnot. But what is what is there that maybe people do not realize in terms of a, a preview uh, um, besides what you've already discussed? Or some other um, 
um, gems in there that they might look forward to? Yeah, I, I think they'll. Um, I think they'll look forward to seeing how it is that we work and all that goes into it. Because again, uh, television has done a lot to create this CSI effect, so to speak. That you know, crimes can be solved in, in, in within the hour given for a, a TV program. And and I think that um, the beauty of, of the book, it, it not only it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't focus singularly on the sketch as much as it. it, it I talk I, I talk about you know how we develop sketches, the psychology that goes into it, um, but the cases themselves are what fascinate people. And I, I I talk about the case from the first radio call all the way to what happened to the. Um, what happened to the what happened to the criminal? Um, in a lot of cases, you know, people want to know whatever happened to that guy. Well, you know, the you know, this is what happened to him in prison, or this is what happened to you know. Um, so you do follow up, yeah, wow, good. I do follow up, and the, the, unfortunately, with some of the victims, you, you can't do follow up because they're homicide victims; they're they're deceased. And of course, the sexual assault victims, you have to respect their privacy and such. But I think that readers will get a keen sense of what goes into a, a police investigation and how all the forensic resources tie together with good old-fashioned police work and the spirit and the determination of these uh, you know, eyewitnesses and victims to survive these horrific crimes and come forward to work with me uh, to, to develop a sketch that, in those cases, made a huge difference. Yeah. Well, I've, got, I've just got to say that in reading some of the the wonderful reviews that have been left on Amazon about the book that it's, and you're, you're talking about true crime readers who are a pretty critical bunch. I, I can tell you that. Um, but the reviews have been very, very good. And I think what I picked up on, on most of them is the fact that you were able to, to write very victim centric and with a lot of empathy towards the victim where a lot of times true crime writers you're writing about the sensationalism of the crime and the, you know, the criminal actually ends up getting more press and more ink than, than the victims are kind of Big left time. behind. And um, I, I see oh, I, within the pages of your book, there, there is a lot of information about the victim. And I think for police departments, that would be an invaluable lesson to learn because I know so many investigations just really, they're just not victim-centric. They don't approach the victims and the victims' families in such a way that they can get the information that they need, which you seem to be um, doing a very good job of it. Well, I, I think I think that, first of all, you know, you know, police were trained <laughs> to go out and, and crush crime. We're not trained to... We're not trained for the soft part, so to speak. You know, dealing with families and the whole violence aspect and all that, that, that what they consider, quote, touchy-feely stuff, makes young officers, old officers, makes them uncomfortable. Me, I'm just naturally a people person, so I'm not uncomfortable. I can't say I, I enjoyed, you know, giving death notifications and things like that, but I had a lot of empathy for people because of my own life experiences and such. And, and I, you know, and you have certain police officers that, you know, that are victim-centric. I mean, I actually, actually, when I wrote the book, I actually thought of naming each chapter for the victim instead of, like, you know, saying, um, you know, uh, for example, one of the, the chapters in the book was, is called, uh, you know, Fast Food, Slow Justice. I thought about naming that chapter Walter Bell after the victim and, the, and the, our little girl, Samantha Runyon. I, I thought of naming each chapter with the victim's name. About the victim. And, about you know to make it about the victim because really it is about them and the focus should be on them and I think that if you look at I think one of the things that irritates me most these days about ID discovery and some of the the TV crime shows they become so titillating they become so sensationalist they become so there's so much sex involved and there's so much uh, you know titillation the tawdry aspect of these people's lives and such and and um, I I just you know I think if we got back to you know, sticking with the facts, so to speak, and not right. sensationalizing and dragging these people through the mud. You know, so people frightening. aren't perfect. None of us are perfect. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. None of, none of us yeah. are perfect, you know. Well, none that's of us are true. Perfect, you know? 
I I commend you for taking that perspective, and I, I can't wait to to read the book in in its entirety. And I thank you so much, Mike. We have unfortunately run out of time for our hour podcast, but I'm hoping that we will be able to keep in touch in the future, maybe meet in the future. Um, and um, so thank you so much. This is going to be available on on the archives and please do go to wildbluepress.com where you can get and I believe probably Amazon and other other places and please do write a review. Uh, Delilah, thank you so much for for your contributions as well and we're going to wind up this hour uh, now into uh, our next show. So thank you again, Mike, and uh, stay well. I will, and just really quick again. Yeah. Go to Goodreads. Go to, go to Goodreads. Leave a review. Go to Amazon. Leave a review. Uh, it, it's going to help me with my next books. And if you need more information about the work I do and how to contact me, you can go to www.sketchcop.com. Very good. Very good. Um, okay. Great. Well, we'll sign off for now, and and we'll be in touch. Thank you, everyone, and have a good weekend. Mm-hmm.